0: Our basic series. If, um, if you don't know us, the, my name is Daryl Temple. This is my beautiful wife, Bethany. We actually are the pastors of this church. And um, we welcome you to our, our family. Um, let's pray for my wife, can we? Father, I just thank you um, for your spirit. Lord, we have all tasted and had witnessed the spirit of God inside of this woman. Lord, I ask, Lord, that we would, in that same tone and in that same manner, experience, Lord, the strength and the clarity of the word of God preached to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: Well, it's good to be here this morning. Um, Thank you, Michelle. I loved Michelle's announcement. I just have to say, people like Michelle are such an answer to prayer. Um, If you're new here, our objective really isn't to build a mega church, our objective really is to build people are the dwelling place of God, and that we would grow as a community of people in in greater intimacy and relationship. We want to see strong people, people that are strong in the word, strong in their walk with the Lord, but then even from that place, empowered and released to do things and to build the kingdom of God. And so it's a joy when you see people that actually wrestle with the integrity of the word of God, and they want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And it makes all of the labor and all of the sacrifice worth it when you see people People like that, so um, appreciate those of you that are here with laboring with us. I don't know if John chose here today, but John um, preached last week. Um, and just the way church trend and church attendance go, probably maybe half of you were here, and there's probably like another group of people that were here last week that heard his message. I would strongly encourage you to listen to John's message. Um, it was a, a solid word. It was a profound word, but it was also a very basic word because that's actually the series as we're kind of going back to the basics. So what I'm going to do for those of you here today that maybe weren't here last week, I'm going to do a really brief recap um, and then I'm going to actually build off of what he shared. And depending on timing, I'm going to transition actually into something else. So we'll see how that goes. Um, So last week, basically, John spoke to us about the posture of pursuit. And he really just addressed biblically what it is to seek God. That we've been called to seek God, but he also kind of um, went through kind of the modern, more um, contemporary mindset. Um, that in a way it paralyzes us from seeking God because the false grace message, where we almost think that somehow we have already attained and we already have all of the fullness of God, and that is true in a sense spiritually. That all that is in Christ Jesus has been made available to us, but now we have this process of what's called sanctification. How many of you guys? No, you have a mind and you have a soul. You you have other dimensions and parts of your life that now need to come into submission and obedience and be renewed. That's where the word of God says, be renewed in your mind. That's that's a continual process. And all of those things are a part of seeking God, that we would be in a continual posture of being after him. And also he touched upon in the word of God, this is a very strong theme. The issue of hungering and thirsting is very very biblical. It's something that we should not despise. It's something that we should in no way frown upon. And I'm going to be honest with you. If you're here in this place today, that place of hungering and thirsting, it's a gift. Amen. Like when you start to feel that ache of kind of like, I want more of God, we've almost been programmed and trained to despise that and drowned it. Let me go get a good meal and, and kind of distract myself from this discomfort that I feel. Let me go binge watch on Netflix or, you know, all of those things that we do because when we start feeling that ache, we as people, a self-sufficient society that prides ourselves in comfort, right? and ease. When we start to feel that ache, we despise it. And so we do everything in our power and our ability to then drown that ache. But if you understand that aching, that is the hand of God upon you. That is the activity of the Holy Spirit. So many times when I'm ministering to people and they're almost lamenting over their present condition and they're longing for more, we don't need to lament over that. We need to rejoice and say, this is the gift of God. He's stirring hunger inside of me. So if you're here today feeling lack, I'm going to say this to you. It's the grace of God that's made you aware of your lack. I'm not saying rejoice in your lack. I'm saying rejoice that you're aware that you need more of God. Because when we're in the place that we're not aware of our need and our lack, to be honest with you, that's a dangerous place to be. If you're here today and you don't feel your lack, you probably should ask the Lord, say, open up my eyes that I might see. Enlighten my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Because that's the issue is oftentimes when our eyes are closed, we don't see our true condition and our true state, and even that place of having an appetite for more of him. So if you're hungry here today, if you have any sense inside of you of longing or aching for more of God, that's the activity of the Holy Spirit. So rejoice in that. Rejoice that he has not left you where you are. You know, it's interesting. How many of you guys have ever heard the Bob Sorge um, he, he talks about the book of Job. I should send it out to our, our email list. But he's talking about the book of Job. Are you guys familiar with Bob Sorge? He's a teacher. Um, he's, he's a beautiful man of God. And he actually ended up being afflicted with an issue in his throat. And so he has to talk at a whisper. And he can only talk so often a day. And that's like, his, he was a pastor and a worship leader. So like, how do you talk and teach and sing? And that's what you do when you can't <laughs> talk. But um, he said his sister emailed him one day and said, um, where do you see the grace of God in the book of Job? How many of you guys know the book of Job is like all about Job's suffering and loss and and all of these things? And he said he just thought for a moment, how do I explain the grace of God in Job's life? Because that's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? And he responded back and he said, the grace of God is that God did not leave Job alone. He could have just left him in his comfortable life He could have left him with the blessings and all of the things that he had and ultimately to be satisfied in the present life that he had. But instead, he did not leave Job alone. He brought Job into a greater place of longing, but also uh, perfection and purification. And so we should desire and posture our lives that God would not leave us alone. That instead of us almost denying and trying to reject when his hand is stirring hunger and desire inside of us, we should avail ourselves to that. So uh, John talked about this posture of seeking in Psalms 27, 8. Um, The word seek, how many of you guys are familiar? This is where the psalmist David actually said, um, the, uh, the voice of God said unto me, seek my face. And my heart replied, your face, O Lord, I will seek. You know, when we're talking about language like seeking God, there's some, there's some side to it where it's almost like mysterious, kind of like, well, what does it look like to seek God? You can actually find that when you study in the original Hebrew, it's very literally to like worship and pray. Like, that's the vehicle that we've been given to come to know him more fully. But, you know, I can remember, I was actually telling Abram about this the other day. I can remember being, like, in the first grade because I remember my room and all of those things. And my parents, they, they were very diligent to, like, pray for me at night before I went to bed and all of those things. So they would say their, my goodnight prayers and read me my devotional. But I can remember in the first grade, after my parents would leave the room, having that aching in my spirit of, like, I want to know God. Like, how do I know God? Like, how do I, and, and thinking like, how do I hear his voice? God, what's your voice sound like? And as a little first grader, I would like physically get out of my bed and kneel next to my bed and just in the silence, just wait and go, can I hear your voice? And it's funny because even at that age, I didn't have the language to say, I have a heart to seek God. I didn't have language for that. I couldn't have articulated it. But then, getting older and reading the Word of God, I realized that is what it is to seek God. It's a longing for Him. So, posturing your life that you might know Him more fully. And so, this is where the Psalmist David said, You said unto me, Seek my face. And my heart replied, Your face, O Lord, I will seek. Psalm 14.2 and Psalm 53.2 are exactly the same passages of Scripture. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see that there are any who are wise in understanding, if there are any that seek God. Do you understand that a seeking heart, that's the mark of wisdom, that we're wise when we're a seeking people, so we shouldn't see that as foolish, we shouldn't see that as weak and insignificant, that that is Wisdom. Um, Romans 3, 10 through 11, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. There we see, again, the mark of wisdom. And so as John was preaching and he was talking about like this posture of seeking and as he did it so eloquently, I realized that a lot of what he was doing is like actually kind of coming against kind of our modern and contemporary understanding. Because oftentimes we say, well, you know, it, this is New Testament. It's after the cross. All the fullness of Jesus has been made available. He purchased it all at the cross. So therefore, we somehow dismiss that we have a part to play in participation, in cooperation, and in the pursuit of him. But you know, as he was talking, I realized it's laid out so clearly in the book of Acts. And so we're going to start here, but I'm going to transition us because this is kind of where I wanted to follow up on what he was saying. As I was sitting there, I realized the book of Acts is actually after Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. He walked among them for 40 days. He ascended. And what did he say to them? He didn't say, I've now purchased it all. I've now done it all. It's all available. Just go vacation and find yourself an island and rest. (laughs) What did he say? He said, go to the upper room and tarry there. Do you guys even understand the language of the word tarry? That is not a pleasant word. It's like the waiting process that is difficult. It's like waiting beyond waiting. It's like waiting when you don't feel like it. It's like continuing when there's no more hype and there's no more emotion. It's going there in a difficult place and waiting. I mean, I'm going to just say this. How many of us enjoy waiting? Not one of us here. I don't know one person. I talk to a lot of people throughout the week. Whenever we're in seasons of waiting for something to change or shift or break or, you know, all of these transitions, the waiting process is ultimately like what kills us because we don't want to wait. So I'm going to make something happen. <laughs> I'm just going to do it. I'm gonna <laughs> or we transition ourselves. We forcibly transition because we don't like the way that God or the timing that God has it in. So there they go, and they're going to wait for 10 days in the upper room. But what do we find? This is a company of people that are in the posture of prayer. Can I just ask you, if, and we're actually going to walk, look at this trend throughout the book of Acts. If Jesus had accomplished it all at the cross, and there's nothing left for us to do, why did he charge them then to go and wait? What did they do? They went and wait. They tarried there. They prayed for 10 days in that upper room. And what took place? We find the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is released. So then some of us would say, well, we've had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, so now we've all are partakers of that, so therefore there's no need for us then to contend in the place of prayer. But have any of you actually read the book of Acts from beginning to end? If you have not, you need to. I'm going to encourage you, take this week and read the book of Acts. It should define our posture as the New Testament church. And I'm going to tell you what you're going to find there. You're going to find the posture of seeking. You're going to find the posture of people that are seeking after something, even after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, even after Peter preaches and 3,000 are saved. Do you know what you find? You find them gathered together again in the place of prayer. I've done it. I, I teach the whole book of Acts when I go to a specific school that I teach at. I teach it from beginning to end. So I can tell you, if you look at the book of Acts, the rhythm is... That they see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but then they don't just bask in all the beauty and they don't gloat in all the splendor and they don't rest in that place. They continue to press in because they know that they need filling, infilling, and more infilling because we are carnal, broken, fleshly people. And you know what it is? Is Paul had the understanding that we have to wrestle and contend against those, those desires and those appetites. Most of us are wondering why we're kind of given prey to depression and addiction and cycles in our life. It's because instead of wrestling against them, we kind of give in. Well, if God really wants to break in, it's our perspective This is what I'm going to say to you. You Look at the New Testament church. This is the the birthing of the New Testament church in the book of Acts. This is before we got all the funk and junk of humanism, you know, infiltrating the church of somehow there is no part that you have to play. If you look at the New Testament church, you find that they lived in the rhythm of prayer and fasting. 3,000 are added in a day. I know for me, many of you guys also know, When you're a part of, like, big pushes, like 40 days before the call, and you push hard, most of us, like, after we're, like, seeking God for something specific or a breakthrough or an initiative or let's talk about, like, an evangelistic outreach, you kind of, like, pour it all out, right? And we all fast and do all the disciplines. And then it's almost like after that mark in time, we all just like take a break. Woo, I expended myself. I really sought the Lord. I am going to just take a break now. That was a lot. Now I'm going to just go back to enjoying my restaurants and all of my regular programming and my, my casual existence here. And I'm not, hear me, I'm not, I go out to eat and I, I watch shows you know, with my husband occasionally, all of those things. I'm not saying, what I'm talking about is the perspective, the posture and the very lifestyle we adopt. Do we have a lifestyle of seeking God, or do we just do it in seasons, in intensified moments of our life, or is the lifestyle and the posture of our life to seek him? But that's what we find in the book of Acts, is we find this group of people, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes, 3,000 are added in a day, and they don't take a hiatus and kind of go into like, well, we've had ministry success. Now I can retire. (laughs) They gather together in the place of prayer again. And I'm going to tell you, look at the rhythm of the book of Acts because you'll find great success. And by that, I mean 3,000 added, 5,000 added, the church being built, great missionary endeavors being released. But then they still gathered. They didn't allow that success to cause ease to enter into their heart. But you want to know what we also find? The book of Acts, there is great trial and tribulation and suffering and difficulty that takes place there as well. It is not all just glory and pie in the sky. There's great challenges. They are being persecuted and imprisoned. And do you realize that at every hardship, the response of their life is to gather together in the place of prayer? You know, they get imprisoned, and what happens? How many of you guys know the story in Acts chapter 12? uh, James is killed. I mean, I know that when we read the word, we're kind of like, yep, so James was killed. Yep, no big deal. Kind of like we take it so, how many about uh, within our own community, one of us gets killed? Not because we're doing something foolish or ridiculous it's because of the preaching of the gospel and persecution i'm going to tell you that would rattle us to the point that most of us would question the existence of god and if he cares and if he cares why does he allow bad things to happen i mean it would send us into such a spin of confusion and and half of you would fall away and half of you would you know, all of those things but what do you find james is killed Peter is imprisoned. This is the story that most of us know about. Peter's imprisoned, and it's an angel that supernaturally releases him. The chains fall off his feet. The gate opens up. I mean, the whole thing. Like, there's there's no intervention of man other than the fact that it says that the church was gathered together in a house, and it said they prayed earnestly until he was released. How's that for the grace of God if it's his will, if it's God's will? Peter will be released from prison. I mean, that's where we live as the New Testament church. If it is your will for such and such a place, I, I don't want to strive. <laughs> what? What? That's not, that's not biblical. That is not sound. That is not Bible. That is not Jesus. What we find in the book of Acts is the participation of the New Testament church in releasing the will and the purposes of God upon the earth. And that is why we see the fruit and the power and the testimony and the exponential increase of the kingdom of God in the book of Acts is because the posture that the church took. So let's just say, is that why we don't see that kind of increase? Of the kingdom of God in in this day, in this hour, in this generation, it's because of our passive approach that we take. Because we don't want to engage. And hear me, when I say the word strive, it's funny because in our contemporary circles, you're like, well, I just said the word not strive, and now I need to explain that. I'm not saying striving in your flesh, I'm talking about. But Paul actually says that we should strive to enter the narrow gate. (laughs) The language that he uses is one of understanding that there is struggle and there is difficulty and you will have to exert some of your strength and energy. I know that goes completely against our philosophies of rest and comfort and ease, but he is saying you will have to engage and exert your strength to enter into that place. So this is book of Acts. I'm going to say read the book of Acts. If you want to see the posture of seeking and the posture of pursuit, it's in the book of Acts. And if we want to see that kind of exponential increase that the book of Acts saw, we as a community of people, we have to adapt our perspective to the word of God. Not just necessarily to the cultural norms that we have, but what does the word of God say? So we have the book of Acts here. Acts chapter 12 is a, a prime example um, of them continuing. So Peter then goes and knocks on the door, and they're still praying. Like they're still in a prayer meeting. It wasn't one of these things that they just give up. Um, Acts chapter 12, you know, I actually, I'm going <laughs> to give this little analogy as far as perspective. You guys are all familiar with Numbers chapter 13. Most of you in this place. If you're not, I'm going to give you like a quick little rundown. You have the Israelites that are promised the land of Canaan. They are promised to enter into this land. And through all of kind of their wandering and their journeys and all of these things, they come to a place where they're going to send in 12 spies to go see the land. Right? How many of you guys know this story? The 12 spies come back. Joshua and Caleb basically say, we can do this we can do this. The other 10 come back and they're like, there's giants in the land. They'll eat us. We're like grasshoppers. Right here, this illustration of a land that God had promised. It wasn't without difficulty. It wasn't without challenge. It didn't mean it was going to come without a fight. There was a fight to engage in that place. But what do we see the key component? The key component is perspective. These two people had a a heavenly perspective of understanding the endorsement and the power of heaven. That if God has said it, regardless of the giants in the land, yes, we can. And the other ten, it was, well, God said it, but I saw these huge giants. And I'm really not up for the fight. Most of us live in that place. I'm not up for the fight. If it requires something of me, count me out. Peace out. I'm there as long as it's easy. I'm there as long as it comes naturally. <laughs> I'm there as long as I see all the endorsement of heaven. But if there's something required on my part, then I don't want to exert myself. But what do we find? These two, these two gentlemen, instead of seeing the giants, it's their perspective. They see the promise of God. They see the word of God and the power of God. I just want to, I, I'm not asking for a show of hands. I want you just to, even before the Lord, ask the Lord, what is my perspective? And when I say this issue of perspective, because, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people over the course of a week, not just here. So when I give an illustration, it's probably nobody even in this room whether it's people outside of this room or other national ministries or international ministries. And I can tell you oftentimes I can hear people that are going through some of the most trying, perplexing, heartbreaking, devastating circumstances. And when they have a heavenly perspective, they're still clothed with such peace. It doesn't move them or shake them or rattle them. Then I talk to other people that, to be honest, some of their circumstances are, almost sound foolish. I'm like, huh? Like, I, like I really, and I, hear me, I'm not comparing. But what I'm saying is, is that when you hear and then the amount of devastation that it causes them inwardly, because it's an issue of perspective. There, there's a perspective issue. And it, basically, it's the lens by which how we view our life, how we view God, how we view others. And this is primarily what we see here in numbers, is with Joshua and Caleb, there's a perspective. I'm going to give you this illustration this way. So when I was in high school, uh, we climbed Mount Washington. The high school that I was a part of um, was very outdoorsy, if you can imagine that. But (laughs) me, outdoorsy. Um, I would be if it weren't for ticks now. But (laughs) so we climbed Mount Washington. And how many of you guys know, like here in the Northeast region, that's like our highest point, our highest um, mountain that you can climb here. So... We had all prepared, and m- mind you, when you're going on a school trip to climb Mount Washington, you definitely, you're mentally preparing, you're physically, you had to have certain footwear. We all knew that it was going to be 90 degrees at the bottom, and very likely when we get to the top, it was going to be negative 10 degrees and snowing. You know, so you're, you're, you have the appropriate gear. Not only that, it's going to take us the entire day to get there. So you're going to pack water and you're going to pack nuts. And there's a place of preparation mentally of saying, this is what I'm setting out to do. This is not going to be easy. Like I in no way in my head was like, oh, it's going to be like a nice leisurely stroll through the woods. You know, you know I, in, I prepared myself mentally. This will be a challenge. This is going to be difficult. So our group, you know, set out, There definitely were some people that, along the way, just couldn't continue, which is fine. Um, But there was a place of preparation to climb that mountain. And and with that, and when you prepare, you're able to embrace that this is going to be hard and difficult. It does not come as a shock. Now, in contrast to this, this is actually a really funny story. Uh, So Daryl and I, we'd go away, like, usually once a year with his side of the family. And he has five siblings. And so there's one sister that's always kind of like in charge of all the outings and stuff. And we can all, it's not like a dictatorship, like we can all contribute. But at the end of the day, she's going to not only call the shot, but be held responsible if it doesn't go well. (laughs) I feel terribly for her. But So we were all in the process of planning outings for the week when we were up in the White Mountains. And we were staying across from Mount Washington and she says one day cuz mind you out of the five siblings everybody's married everybody has children different ages i think that year we actually had like a newborn in a pack that was traveling with us and so she says yep i talked to some people there's this real easy trail and she used the word trail and someone went trail like do you mean like a mountain and she was like no 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 they they explicitly said it's not a mountain and so she's like, it's, a, it's just a trail. We're going to see waterfalls. And, you know, so the whole, I mean, some people were in flip-flops. You know, nobody packed water other than me, because we all know that if I'm just even going five minutes down the road, I pack lunch and water and all the essentials. <laughs> I do, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> so I had it all, and I did. I, we all had changes of clothes and footwear. And, mm, <laughs> and Daryl carried it all on his back. But... <laughs> So there with my sense of preparedness, but you know what happened was we literally get like, I think like a half, not even a half, a quarter of a mile into the woods and the family starts going, how long is this? Like, how long is the trail? Like, cause we'd walk for a half a mile and she's like, uh, well, I I think they said that when you get to this waterfall, so we all continue. And at this point you have family members like laying on trees, like (laughs) You said this wasn't going to be hard. You said that, you know, like, (laughs) I mean, the whole thing was, like, comical. And, you know, I'm kind of, you know, in my good hiking shoes going, this isn't so bad. Like, we're maybe at a small incline, but nothing. Well, then it progressively gets a little more inclined. And I am going to say this to you. It definitely was not a mountain. It was more of a hill. It was a hill. It was definitely a hill. It wasn't a flat surface that we were walking upon. But I'm going to say this to you. Because of the issue of perspective and preparedness that all of these people were wearing flip-flops, no one had water. I mean, at that point, they're like, I'm thirsty," You know, they're like, I can't breathe! You know, and I'm like, open your mouth, I'll spray one of my 80 cans of water in there. You know, know, it's that place of preparedness. You know, they're grumbling and complaining the whole way because it's not what they expected. It's not what they signed up for. And this really is the issue that we see here, is that most of us, when we encounter struggle or difficulty or delay, it's not what we expected. Like no one ever told us, this is what you're signing up for. Like no one actually said, narrow is the way. Do you know that word narrow literally means difficult and full of hardship and tribulation and pain? That's what that word means. If, if there was an altar call today and I was like, hey, who wants to receive Jesus? The word of God says in, in Matthew 7 that narrow is the gate. It actually uses it twice. It actually uses the word straight is the gate and narrow is the way. Straight is the gate. It's literally meaning very, like only one at a time can pass through. Like the multitudes aren't running through there. It's not the common way. It's not the popular way. It's not the way of the masses. It is this narrow, difficult way. How many of you guys have ever heard the salvation call pitched that way? Now, who wants to sign up to go completely contrary to all of your fleshly instincts today? And who wants to go through that narrow gate that may be marked with a lot of struggle and difficulty and hardship, but in the end it leads to life? And that's where that passage in in Matthew 7 says, but broad, broad, you know what that means? It's a really wide path. We can all kind of fit through and meander through and we can even socialize and have good chats and (laughs) sip our coffee and latte along that broad path as we meander that says that it leads to destruction. Do you see the imagery? We should actually turn to the Bible here. I'm I'm like, quote scripture, tell you the story. Hopefully you distrust me. But here we go, Matthew 7. Um, It's really here in black and white. So this is the two ways. Actually, you know what we'll do is in Matthew 7, I wasn't planning on this, but we'll look at the four points here, even though not all four of them are my topic. Um, What time is it? Oh, wow. That's my my intro. Uh, (laughs) We'll wrap it up. Um, Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. How many of you guys noticed our new big cups? Delightful. They're no longer the the mini. Those things I took like a sip and I'm like, my water's gone. (laughs) Do you remember them? They were like this big, they were like the children's size. Okay, Matthew chapter 7. Let's see. says, enter by the narrow, depending on what translation you have, it may say the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. That literally, the word few literally means that there's a minority who find it, that this is not the... So you know what I'm going to do here, just because it actually kind of ties in with the first message that we um, that Daryl gave us during the basic series, is if you actually break kind of this chapter here down, there's actually four things that are being addressed. You know, the first one here is this issue of the narrow way, and this narrow way is specifically speaking of the gate which provides the entrance to eternal life. That it's n- narrow because it runs counter to our natural inclinations. That it's the understanding that this is the way to eternal life. So it's actually saying like the way that we enter into salvation, but also that it goes on to say because narrow is the path. So it's then that like even once you enter That it's not, there's no assurance that the path is going to be easy or filled with joy and all of those things. And that's where we need to understand that it's in the midst of it that Jesus is our joy. That it's not ultimately about the life that we live even now, but it's the person that we walk with along that pathway. I'm actually going to read to you um, Luke chapter 13, 24. Actually echoes, let's turn there really quickly. This is where he uses the language, um, Luke 13, 24, strive to enter through the narrow gate. That word strive literally means to enter a contest, to contend almost in like a gymnastics game. It's to contend with adversaries, those adversaries that would seek to keep us from that place. Um, To struggle with difficulties and even with danger to endeavor with strenuous zeal, to strive to obtain something. This word also means to struggle literally or figuratively. Um, And it actually has has the understanding of to labor fervently. All of these things are very opposed kind of to our natural desire for a life of ease and safety and security. But this is where he gives us this exhortation you know, to strive to enter the narrow gate. And I'm just going to really quickly just touch so you guys can see. So this is the the first principle in Matthew 7.13. And then it goes on in Matthew um, 7.15 through um, 20. Is actually, this is the exhortation toward false prophets, like the warning to us about false prophets. It says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing." but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. So this is actually where it's going on to say that to guard yourself from being deceived from those outwardly that would teach a gospel um, that is not a true gospel. But then actually in verse 21, it moves. The the text moves from being uh, warned outwardly to outward teaching and false prophets to a warning inwardly and this is actually where we find in verse 20 it says not everyone who says to me Lord Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father in heaven many will say to me in that day Lord Lord have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name in verse 23 and then I will declare to them I never knew you Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So the warning goes from being warned to kind of outward deceptions and those that would deceive us outwardly to a place of saying, basically, don't be deceived inwardly. Don't be deceived to your own condition and your own state of your heart. I love where it actually says that the Lord says, I never knew you. Oftentimes we ask people, do you know Jesus? He's saying here, I never knew you. The question is, does he know us? You know, because we, th- we can have kind of a, a distant knowledge of someone, right? How many of you guys, there's things you know about celebrities and pop stars, and it actually makes you feel like you know them, right? Because you get information about them, and you see so much about them. So even though they don't know you, they, know, they don't know your name, they know nothing about your life, you feel like you know them. Because you hear so much and there's a familiarity. It's the same thing with God. Is that it's easy to hear so much and kind of gather information of like, okay, like he's like this and that's what he's. But the question is, does he know you? Are we in a, a living, breathing relationship with him? And then it goes on actually in verse 24. And this is where this section is finished. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. This is where Daryl started us out on this series about uh, being a hearer and not Um, Yeah, being a, a doer and not a hearer only. And so he's giving this exhortation. Therefore, whoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and these winds blew and, and beat at that house. <clears throat> and it fell and great was, it, great was its fall. I'm just gonna read you guys a couple of passages of scripture. What we find here, um, Paul is exhorting Timothy in 1 Timothy and Paul is aware that the Christian life is a spiritual conflict. It's a spiritual conflict for faith and for good conscience. In 1 Timothy 1.18, it says, This charge I commit you, son, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, having faith in a good conscience, conscience which some of us, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.1-10, You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must first partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to the gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also might obtain the salvation which is in Jesus Christ with eternal life. And then we actually find um, in First Peter... Uh, 1.13, it says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. That's a place of mental preparedness. Like, clothe your mind in right understanding and right perspective. And be sober. Set your hope upon the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed in his coming. First Peter four twelve through sixteen, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, for when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and the and of God rests upon you. On their part, He is blasphemed, but on your part, He is glorified. But, but let none of, you, none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. This is where it's kind of defining like what our suffering is unto and caused from. Um, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him uh, glorify God in this manner. And ultimately, that's what it is unto, that even the places of struggle and hardship, it is unto us being conformed to the image of Christ. That is ultimately what is unto, but it's also unto him being glorified. And, you know, I'm not here to say to anybody this morning that you should expect, you know, meaning in a sense of, like, welcoming difficulty. Let's be honest. There are seasons of our life that are difficult and trying, and then there's also high points. It's kind of like the the, the mountain climbing experience I was telling you about. There are seasons where you are climbing, and it is difficult, but then once you get to that mountaintop, you have a different view and a different perspective, and you get to enjoy the reward and the benefit of that ascent. You get to partake of the beauty of that place. But that is often, I'm going to say this too. this is the downfall of our generation. We want the mountaintops without ever having to ascend to those high places. You know, all of us want to partake of these high places in God. I want to know God. I want to know his voice. I want great power, great authority. You know, we we think all of these things that we want our life to encompass and possess. But ultimately, there is a process by which those things are attained. There is a process by which he can entrust those things to us. And do you know, there's a very practical understanding here. It's an issue of us, the worth that we place upon him. And this is really fundamentally what it comes down to because when it gets difficult and when it gets challenging, if we back out, do you know what it's saying? It's saying it's not worth the struggle. How many of you guys just got a degree in something? There, that did not come easily. You had to study and discipline yourself and all of those things. You could have backed out halfway. It is not worth the sacrifice. But you counted something as worthy of your time and your sacrifice. And do you know that that is the same thing with our relationship with Christ? He entrusts himself to us to the very measure that we have shown ourselves trustworthy of him. Can I ask you a question? How many of you guys go someplace where you're not valued? No, really. (laughs) I know some of you are like, "Hmm." No, do you go someplace where you don't feel valued? Or that your presence is not um, welcomed or desired or esteemed. You know, I'm going to give you a very practical illustration. And ours is not the norm. But many of you guys know that Daryl and I, we had like a 12-year courtship. Sometimes when I think about it, I'm like, that's a long stick in time. Uh, We're going on nine nine years of marriage. So like when I think about the amount of my life that I've been with him. But do you even realize? (laughs) We've been together like, (laughs) it's like 20 something, I mean 20, I don't know, 20, yeah, there you go. But the amazing thing is, is that any point in time during... Because I, I definitely was a struggle. Daryl had to struggle, not because I didn't love him. I just didn't think I wanted to get married. I, th- I just That wasn't in my context at several points. And I thought in order to do what I was called to do, I was going to do that singly. But this is what I'm going to say to you. He at any point in time could have just said, this is not worth the fight. <laughs> you are not really worth it. <laughs> All of these years of... But do you realize that him engaging in that place... It definitely was a place of saying he thought that something was worth. There was something on the other side of that place of pain and struggle and delay and difficulty. And you got me. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's an analogy, but more I'm, I'm actually just talking about the place of that even in our relationship with God, that when we go through those seasons that we don't really understand the process, we don't understand why this is so difficult, that there is a place where our heart is being tested and tried. There is a place where there, there's a, there, a perfecting of our heart and of our life. And, you know, I'm going to close out, actually, with this passage of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 7, it says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. We're not living and walking in perfect holiness, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this passage of scripture. Um, if you go a little bit further down in verse 10, it says 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of this world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. So this is what it's saying, is that when we repent in a godly manner, there's something produced inside of us. There's something produced with godly repentance, and I, I want us to look at the language of what true repentance produces because it's definitely not a posture of ease and lackadaisical lifestyle of somehow I've just received you know, the free gift and there's nothing co- required of me. This is what it's produced. It says, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly mariner, what diligence it produced in you. The word diligence literally means earnestness. That when you've partaken and received forgiveness and you've repented, there's a diligence that's produced inside of you. Um, it's actually the interest of oneself earnestly and carefully given to the intent of one thing. haste. goes on to say, what clearing of yourself, which literally means a vigilant defending of oneself to give a full account. What indignation it actually means to have to be very displeased and greatly afflicted over something. And then it goes on to say, and what fear, there's a place of reverence and honor that's invoked. What vehement desire, the word vehement desire literally means a longing and an earnest desire to pursue with love and to go after. What zeal is produced of you? How many of you guys that because of repentance and godly sorrow, you've seen zeal that's been produced in your life? The word zeal means excitement of mind. It means fervor of spirit, it's fierceness of indignation, and it's, it's um, punitive zeal. What vindication, it means actually revenge and a punishment. When we're speaking of the punishment, it's actually meaning like punishment against the enemy, that we would no longer kind of lie down and accept what the, those things that he has robbed from us. But do we even see this very language is not one of inactivity? This is one that it produces a zeal inside of us. And so I want to pray for our community today because as we're going through this basic series, I love that John addressed, um, you know, the posture of pursuit, but I want us as a a community of people to have a very specific paradigm and perspective that the narrow way it does not come without struggle and difficulty so that there's a place of mental preparedness that when you are going through those hardships, you don't somehow think God singled you out and is picking on you. Like somehow I got the, the bad path and everybody else got the easy. You, this is what I want to say to you. The sin of comparison will cripple you. It will absolutely cripple you because for every single one of us, I don't care what it looks like for the person next to you, the right of you, or your next-door neighbor. Every single person has an area of pain and struggle and hardship, and you cannot judge the, the, the posture but also the portion that they've been given. And oftentimes when I'm ministering to people that are like depressed or under serious heaviness, oftentimes I've realized we misunderstand the process that we're in, but we also feel very isolated. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but there's many people in this place that you think like, I'm the only one that can't get my mess together. (laughs) I'm the only one that this is hard for me. I'm the only one that this does not come naturally. And it's that in that place of isolation that we then begin to get depressed. And there's almost like a heaviness that comes on us because we feel very alone. And if you could understand that every single person has their own place, that the path that they are upon, that there's places of different, and I'm going to say this to you too, friend. If you have that understanding, it causes us to extend a lot of grace to other people. Because you understand that the very same difficulty and hardship and the grace that you need is the same grace that other people need. Instead of somehow thinking that like they have it all together and they should have it all together, like get your mess together, it's the place of extending grace. And you know, as we enter into this basic series, if you look in the book of Revelation, you can actually see that one of the main components is because of the way things will happen and... Um, the judgments that will be released. I'm not going to go into a whole thing of eschatology here, but it's the the issue of when judgments are being released and when everything like kind of the timeline plays out, part of the component is the heart of the church being offended because we don't have a paradigm that he would allow those things and permit those things. And do you want to know, it's not just in Revelations with most of us here, we become offended with him because we don't like his ways. We don't like that he allows for such struggle and difficulty. We somehow think, and you know what I'm going to say to you, friend? Your perspective is about heaven and eternity. If you're looking for the place of no struggle, no suffering, no disease, no tears, that's heaven. That does not happen here. We are on the earth side that is full of brokenness and disease and devastation and sin. And so on this side, we have to understand that it is not God that we accuse and that we blame that we are living in a fallen world. That's where you are. If you didn't know that, I'm just going to introduce you. Welcome to planet Earth. It is a fallen world. You are not yet in your eternal body. You are not yet in all of heaven with all of the saints with continual worship and prayer. You are in a very, and you know, it's funny because I was like 16 years old. Some of you guys know this story. I was 16, the woman that kind of like, walked me went through my little... Re- you guys know I had, like, a rebellion when I was 12. <laughs> I wore, like, mini skirts. and <laughs> That was my rebellion. Um, <laughs> I, my rebellion was this. Instead of, like, worshiping the Lord wholeheartedly at church, I would, like, put my hands on the seat and put my foot up, like, I am so not interested in this. But I'm here because I actually love Jesus. I'm just trying to be rebellious. But um, I was. I tried really hard to do that, but it didn't work for me so good. Uh <laughs> I don't really have a rebellious bone in my body. <laughs> um, but during that, <laughs> during that time when I was 16 years old, this woman that was like the dearest thing to me who just had me for sleepovers and just loved me through my little prickly season, um, she got diagnosed with cancer. And she was diagnosed with cancer. And so I was very, this was like, when, when I say like I gave my life wholeheartedly to Jesus, I mean, I gave my, I was like going for it. She got diagnosed with cancer, um, and she ended up getting through that cancer, and then she was diagnosed again. And I can remember she was in her hospital bed. um, It's a long story. Her lungs all filled with blood, and um, she was sedated and stuff. And I can remember saying so specifically to the Lord in her hospital room and looking at her and say, I actually said these words. I said, Jesus, I know I just gave my life to you. I'm like, but if you kill her, I will never follow a God like you. That's what, that was my perspective of, like, if you do this. She had kids my age that I, was, that I was close to, a lot of struggle even in that family, and I just thought, God, you cannot allow this to happen. And I remember I kind of made that vow, I will never follow a God like you. And uh, it was in Beth Israel. Two days later, we were all there when she passed away. And I can remember going into the bathroom, and, you know, my 16-year-old body was heaving, just heaving in pain, in agony, in a in – a, bathroom at the hospital and just so angry and going through the process of the funeral and the wake and all of those things over the course of that next week. And I can remember after that, I didn't go to school for like a week. My mom remembers this well because I think she thought I was like suicidal. Um, I didn't go to school for like the week, but I locked myself in the room and I only, the only thing I knew how to do because I had just given my life to Jesus, I was so mad, but I just ended up putting on a worship CD Um, at that time. And for three days, just cried, just so like, why? Why do you allow this kind of pain and suffering? Especially if you knew the story of the family even and the fact that this happened to them, it was just so much more perplexing. And I can remember in the midst of all of those three days of not eating and just leaving to go to the bathroom, um, the Lord so clearly at 16, just in his kindness, he so settled my heart. Like He spoke to me and he made himself so clear. That it was at 16 years old, I remember saying, this is, this is not your doing. I live in a world. And I remember, even, I remember even coming to the place of preparing my heart that I will see devastation and loss and suffering, but it's because we live in a fallen world. And, and in that moment, understanding the kindness of God, that he is trustworthy. We can trust him. And it's not him who does it, but he walks with us through suffering. That we live in a fallen world, and just because you have the Jesus card and said the sinner's prayer, it does not mean that somehow you will um, be outside of or the, the reach of suffering and difficulty and hardship, and it doesn't mean that somehow we're, we're supposed to be exempt from that. And it's the understanding that we live in a very fallen, broken world, but that he wants to walk with us through suffering. He wants to be with us and be our comfort. And do you want to understand, this is truly the place where he becomes our everything. Because it's really no longer about what we can acquire and what we can attain and our little cushy life that we can build around us. It's the place of truly being able to say, you are my everything. And as long as I have you, it's all I have need of. And, you know, for some of you, like, that's kind of terrifying to say because what does that mean that it'll take from me? No, that is the safest place to be. You, do you want to know if your heart can come to that place of yieldedness? No matter what you walk through in life, you don't have to fear because your heart will remain steady and constant and immovable and that you have the one that ultimately is worth it all. Everything else can fall and shatter and break and diminish but when we hold on to the beauty and the sincerity of Jesus, we can walk through anything. And he is our stability and our safety. And for, so as we're going through this basis series, I want us to understand that undergirding of the, the, the posture of pursuit, but also that understanding that we would not be disillusioned and in despair when difficulty and hardship comes. That we would, ha- we would gird up the loins of our mind, that basically our hope would be unto his appearing, and that we would find him in all things, that we, he, we would find him even in the place of pain. Do you understand that that's the greatest treasure, is in the midst of pain, being able to find the presence of Jesus? And that is his promise to us, not a life without pain, but that he will be with us in the midst of it. Why don't we stand to our feet? We're going to go ahead and pray. I just want to, as we close out, if there's anybody here today that you know that this issue of not understanding pain and hardship and struggle has almost been like an obstacle or a hindrance to you in your walk with God. Because for you, whether it's that you've accused him or even just you've almost been offended with him because your heart has been hurt and grieved over those things. We want to pray with you here today and agree together with you in prayer. And if that's not you here today, I I want to encourage you, look at the book of Acts. Read through the book of Acts because you'll find the posture of pursuit, but you'll also find that just because there was a community that great glory was resting upon, it doesn't mean that they were outside difficulty and hardship. And so, even as Paul says, "Think it not strange." We shouldn't think it strange when things when there's delay in difficulty, that we're not outside the hand of God and the provision of God but he's there with us in the midst of it. So Father, we thank you, Lord, today for this community, this beautiful community of people. And Lord, I just ask, Lord, that even now, Lord, as we are standing in your presence, God, that there would just come a shifting and an aligning in our hearts. Lord, I ask, Lord, even right now that every person in this place that Almost like uh, the analogy of Daryl's family setting out, um, thinking it was going to be a peaceful stroll. And that when they encountered just even the, the least bit amount of challenge, it just caused such despair to come in their hearts. So there's some here today that when they've set out on their journey with you, that they thought that somehow it made them exempt from difficulty and pain and suffering. And, Lord, it's caused a place of despair. But, God, I just ask, God, that we truly would be, Lord, um, people that set our, ha- our hearts upon the heights. Lord, even in the analogy of Mount Washington, God, that we would know, God, that the way is difficult, that the incline is steep, but that as we ascend and as we continue to walk upon the narrow pathway, Lord, that there are heights in you, Lord, that you have prepared for us and that you have called us unto. Lord, I just pray, Father, as a community of people, Lord, that all of us would, Lord, seek, Lord, to to walk in and to rest in the heights that you've called us to, Father. Lord, that we would willingly embrace the different seasons of our life. Lord, I ask, God, that when the, the, the tidal wave is coming in and it's crashing, God, that we would trust you in the midst of the storm and in the midst of the wave. And Lord, even when the water is receding, God, that we would understand that much of our life, Lord, is even like an ocean. God, that it ebbs and it flows. And Lord, that there's high points and low points. And Lord, that we would have a heart that is steadfast and constant, a heart that is immovable, a heart that is rooted and grounded in your love. And Lord, that our feet would be bound. To walk upon the narrow way. Lord, that we would walk with you. Lord, that we would walk in pursuit of you. And Lord, we thank you, Father, for your grace that is sufficient, your grace that empowers and enables us. So, if there's anybody here today that needs prayer specifically, you can just come up and some of our team will be here. And for those of you that don't, we're gonna go ahead and dismiss and we can get our children we love you guys. Jump in a prayer set this week. Get to a small group and be in community. Love you.
2: We're heaven's creations, His pride and adoration, treasures woven by His love. His careful hands, they hold us safe within this promise of God.